0: Benvenuti. Bienvenido.
1: Welcome to the A Fire podcast, now streaming on Apple, Google, Spotify, and more. Each episode features real and honest conversations with thought leaders from around the world at all levels of the commercial real estate and investing business, examining the ideas and questions fundamental to the future of our industry. Where are we now? What happens next? What should we do about it? How do we become better investors, leaders, and global citizens? For more, here's your host and the CEO of AFIRE, Gunnar Branson.
0: So for over a year now, our conversations have centered, understandably, around COVID and how it's changing everything in our world. I, I wonder, though, sometimes if, if it's just changing the world. Uh, it, it seems that it's doing a lot more than that, that it, that it is revealing things that were already a problem before. Before COVID, was it just too difficult for us to see the implications of sustainability and the imperative to do something about it? Uh, Was it hard for us to see the crisis of social unrest that was on our doorstep or a growing uh, shortage, perhaps, in housing? I mean, those things were there, but we weren't really paying attention to them uh, as much as we could have. COVID has now revealed that we have to pay attention. I've asked a strategist from GTS Partners, um, Robert Sun, to discuss uh, his thoughts on housing in the U.S. and on its prospects now and through the end of this crisis. So, uh, Robert, thank you so much for joining me on the AFIRE podcast. Thank you, Gunnar. Uh, avid listener and uh, you know, really appreciate you inviting me. I think you're the first person who ever told me you were an avid listener. So thank you. Bless you. Uh, that, that, that's wonderful. <laughs> so uh, a lot of things changed uh, in housing over the last year, while our attention was, was uh, focused elsewhere on, on staying alive, on, on locking down. But a lot has been going on, especially in the single family. Um, could, could you give kind of an explanation in terms of what happened? Bring us up to speed on all the things we weren't paying close enough attention to.
2: Sure, yeah, I think that's an excellent question. You know, when we think about housing and really the single family housing market, uh, the way we like to look at it is to say, what happened before COVID? What were these lasting, durable trends that were occurring? And how has COVID really accelerated that? And I think what gets lost in all this is when you rewind back to 2018, 2019, early 2020. We saw a a market with very strong demographics-driven demand with millennials entering their 30s and their 40s. They're forming families, having children, and really needing all the space that you can't find uh, in the cities. And so uh, a lot of this migration trend to the suburbs had really already been occurring pre-COVID. And COVID really just highlighted the need for more space, more privacy, you know, all that stuff that you can't really find in the city. And so, you know, when we think about you know the housing market in general, we think about what's going on now, where you have uh, home sales that are up, you know, new home sales up ten percent, uh, new home prices up, uh, you know, double-digit percentage uh, points in many markets. You know, nationally, home prices up ten percent uh, or you know, more than ten uh, you know, percent. Really, all of that is just a combination of, of people realizing, hey, you know, I need the space and I, I need it now and I can't afford to wait anymore. Um, you know, we see COVID as really just the accelerator of a long term trend, uh, really in in the housing demand uh, you know, growth model.
0: Do you see a, a kind of return of that wave uh, as as things lift again and people don't have the same imperative? I mean, what, what kind of movements do you see kind of both directions?
2: Sure. Yeah, I think it's. Uh, you know, I think it's also important to say you know, to look at. Well, this doesn't mean that housing. Uh, this doesn't mean that the New York City or San Francisco or Chicago or just cities in general are dead. And I think there's a, a temporary factor where when you look at the cities, you know the restaurants are closed or they don't allow indoor dining. The museums are closed. Uh, a lot of the amenities that make cities so special and vibrant uh, really weren't there during COVID. Uh, what we're starting to see now with people getting vaccinated and cities starting to open up is that a lot of those amenities are starting to come back. Uh, and, you know, that means uh, people are you know starting to move back to the cities. Um, so I think there is also a, a bit of an urban recovery story that's going on right now that uh, may also be hidden. Um, but, you know, when we zoom out, I think something that's really important to highlight is, yeah, suburbs were outpacing the cities in terms of population growth uh, for the last five years. Uh, and we at GTIS, we've had this uh, sunbelt and suburbs theme, um, which is really uh, a lot of people were moving out of the city to the neighboring suburbs. So, for example, to use New York City as a as an example, it's people uh, moving out of Manhattan to Long Island or suburban New Jersey and. Uh, or it's people moving uh, from San Francisco to an entirely new city, uh, you know, that's moving to a place like Denver or Austin, uh, places that are more affordable. Um, and so, uh, really, we we see both of those trends, um, and we've seen that really pick up since COVID. Um, and so, you know, we really like the growth story and the demand story there. Um, but that doesn't mean that you know cities are dead, and, and we think there's still great value in in the cities. Uh, where you know you're starting to see a pickup in in contract signings, you know condo contract signings that
0: you know, people aren't really noticing just yet, mm-hmm. but we may be seeing in the next six months or so uh, some of those indicators. Exactly. The um, obviously one of the stories for a while has been the somewhat flattening of population right. growth uh, within the United States, especially with uh, less immigration, uh, and yet. I'm hearing many people, and I've seen many articles on this uh, over the years, uh, of a shortage uh, of housing. So why is it that we're having an overall shrinkage, or not shrinkage, but lack of, of, of fast growth uh, in terms of pop- absolute population numbers, and a, a, a basically a shortage in housing? That must be some sort of demographic trend in terms of who's getting what where. But uh, Robert, can you give us some color around that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, you know, a lot of that is the demand story, but it's also the supply
2: story. Uh, you know, when you uh, when you look at population growth slowing down, well, you know, it has slowed down relative to where it was before, but uh, at you know, about one percent population growth, you know, the U.S. is still one of the largest, uh, you know, one of the strongest growing large economies in the world. Uh, certainly, you look at uh, countries like. Germany, France, or Japan, I think they would be uh, thrilled to have the kind of population growth that the U.S. is seeing. Um, And so, uh, you know, I think there is the demand, you know, is still going to be there. Uh, But the supply side, something I think gets overlooked is that single family housing starts uh, as a percentage of total uh, number of total households. Uh, historically, it's been about 1% to 1.5%, or call it 1.25%, um, you know, uh, as a relationship. Um, since 2008, that relationship has fallen, where single-family housing starts fell to under uh, half a percent of total households. And that really hasn't recovered since. Um, you know, in the most recent data, in 2020, uh, that's only about 0.7 uh, percent. Uh, so, in other words, we, as a country, we've been underproducing single-family homes for over a decade—really 13 years now—and uh, you know that's a lot of the the factors behind why you're seeing existing home inventory fall to record lows. Uh, when you look at the supply as a relationship to demand, or month, you know months of supply, as the housing market likes to look at it, uh, historically. A balanced market is about five to six months. Uh, today, that's under two months of supply, uh, and so you're hearing anecdotes, and I have personal uh, you know, stories as well of people who were one of 20 bids who put uh, an offer, of, uh, an offer uh, on a home that's 20% over asking, and they still didn't win the you know, win the win the home. Um, they were still outcompeted by. You know, other people just desperately looking for uh, just you know a, a place to live outside of the city.
0: When you look at that part of it, the supply part, um, you mentioned in your article uh, a bit around capital and around a gap there um, and how that's operating and how these home builders are are currently operating. Can you expand on that? Sure. Yeah, I think
2: one thing that's interesting to look at from the home building side is. You know, in many ways, home builders they operate like manufacturers. Um, you know, whether it's uh, GM or Ford producing cars, or uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, nineteen twenties widget maker making widgets. You know, home builders uh, really they're in the manufacturing business, and so uh, you know, well, that means a couple of things. One is you know, they don't want. Uh, their capital trapped on their balance sheet. Uh, you know they really want to focus uh, or operate like a manufacturer, which is really driven on return on equity, um, and that is about uh, sourcing just in time capital uh, and you know really producing homes where there is demand. Uh, and then secondly, uh, what we've seen since two thousand eight is uh, really a lot of the public home builders have gained in in market share. Um, and you know they've been capitalizing uh, you know, their business through corporate bond issuances and equity issuances, uh, but there's still a vast majority—60% of the new home production is from private builders, and you know, they can't tap the corporate bond market. They can't tap the uh, the public equities market. They can't tap, tap the stock market. And so, where do you go for capital? Well, it's uh, a lot of times it's uh, local community banks who have their own. Uh, you know, bank capital restrictions, or it's accessing alternative uh, sources of financing, uh, alternative capital. Um, you know, despite the fact that home building itself, uh, the housing market is thirty-three trillion dollars uh, in asset size, or double the size of the entire U.S. commercial real estate market uh, combined, it's really not seen as a major uh, real estate food group by a lot of the institutional allocators, uh, and so. It is a market where uh, you know, there's just this tremendous need of uh, for capital um, and as a manufacturer, the more you build, the more capital you need. So ironically enough, since uh, the COVID crisis, when uh, everyone is out there trying to find a new home and home builders are desperately trying to you know, meet the supply, that means more capital right when the capital markets have pulled back. And that's really widened what we call a a capital markets gap.
0: What are you most concerned about happening uh, in the next few years? And, you know, everyone seems to be predicting a bit of a boom time, um, a lot of growth, uh, you know, in our cities, as well as in our suburbs and these tertiary markets that everyone's moved to. Uh, What do you think could interrupt the party uh, in terms of, of growth in this area? Sure. Yeah, I think
2: uh, there are a couple factors, uh, or a couple ways to look at it. Uh, from a market's perspective, uh, you know, we at GTIS have really been focused on uh, kind of the major uh, housing markets, called the top twenty housing markets of the U.S. I think when you go beyond that, it's a little tough to tell. You know, if you're looking at a market, uh, uh, you know, in Bozeman, Montana, for example, uh, which has also seen a lot of demand, it's tough to say. You know, is that really long term? durable demand, or is that really just temporarily fueled by, you know, the coronavirus crisis? Um, So, uh, you know, I think it's very important to to understand, you know, what are the factors that are driving the current uh, market demand? and that's something that's going to be there when we exit the crisis. Um, I think just more generally, uh, one of the things I'm very worried about is just inflation as a whole, Um, you know, whether that's cost inflation uh, You're starting to see a lot of that uh, reflected in the bond markets, with uh, Treasury yields you know, rising, you know, uh, 100 basis points year to date. Um, you know, I think that's reflecting stronger economic growth uh, or you know, more favorable uh, expectations. But I think also some of that is just reflecting uh, inflation pressures. Uh, and so, when you are in, you know, when you invest in development, for example. Uh, you know, one of the biggest uh, sources of uh, return erosion, or one of your biggest risks, is that you know you get a cost bus, uh, where costs just balloon. And so, I think you know we are very, very cautious of that. Uh, we try to mitigate that, um, where you know, if we can get uh, you know, whether that's focusing on shorter duration type investments, or in many times take a structured approach where we invest a. Uh, you know, as both uh, you know, invest in the debt position as well, where you're more insulated from uh, the the cost and timing pressures. Uh, you know that that are pretty unique right now.
0: So, what do you think is? What m- are you most excited about um, as an institutional investor in this market? But but generally, I mean, what, what what's going to? Uh, what do you think is going to get you to jump out of bed every day and go, man, I can't wait to get into work?
2: Well, yeah, I would say. Uh, from just uh, a broad opportunity standpoint, I think you know everyone is focused on on single family rental, but uh, there's been a lot more you know, interest in single family built to rent. Uh, and I think you know in many ways it's very rare that you see an industry just emerge uh, you know, from really kind of uh, uh, nothing to become one of the you know the asset classes that everyone is saying, "Hey, I need to get exposure to," um, and so. You know, in many ways, I see this is uh, very similar to multifamily uh, you know, in the 80s or in the 70s, uh, where it was just becoming institutionalized. Uh, you start to have uh, you know, more of an uh, institutional mindset as far as you know, how do we operate it, how do we develop it. Uh, I think single-family rental 1.0 was buying existing homes on the you know, court steps out of foreclosure. Uh, and then just filling it up and, you know, some people they looked at it as a trade uh, and others looked at it as a long term you know, source of income. Uh, I think SFR 2.0 now is about, well, you know, how do we build it? Uh, I think you're starting to see the tiering of uh, just like multifamily. You have class C, class B, class A. I think single family rentals now you're going to see class A, class B, class C and different product types, different you know. Different, uh, you know Product segmentation, differentiation, targeting different groups. Uh, you know, in the Phoenix, for example, you see a lot of this uh, kind of high density product, or what I call is effectively multifamily detached. Um, you know, which is a very unique uh, kind of model, and you're starting to see that elsewhere. In a, you know, in in different markets like Tampa as well.
0: Well, that is exciting. That is interesting, and and uh, I think we're, we're probably going to have more conversations about this uh, in the months and years to come, um, as this new asset class becomes uh, a, you know everyone's favorite asset class. So that may happen. Certainly, that happened to multifamily. Um, Well, we've run out of time. Uh, I want to encourage everyone who's listening to make sure you take a look at Robert's article. It's called Housing for Goldilocks. It was in our most recent issue of AFIRE Summit. You can find it on AFIRE.org, or it might even be in your inbox uh, from your your social media feeds. But do make sure you do read it. He includes some fantastic and eye-opening charts around what's happening in this business um, and really just a great place to start the conversation about an emerging uh, new institutional asset class, so thank you Robert, for being a part of the a fire podcast Thank you gutter.
1: Please visit afire.org slash podcast.